Hello, and welcome to Orchid Story, a podcast for women who have experienced a big event in their lives that divided it into the before and after. I'm Rachel Nussbaum, and I'm here to help you find meaning and healing through personal narrative now that your life looks different than the one you expected. I'm sharing stories from real life. The details may be different from your story, but the connection is universal. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of the Orchid Story podcast. I'm so glad you're here, especially if you are listening to this in somewhat real time. In March of 2020, we are dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, and life looks really different for all of us. This week in my newsletter, um, I asked my community to think about their behaviors, kind of notice what you're doing to cope with this traumatic situation that we're all in. I want to fix things for you. I don't want you to be in uncertainty. I want you to have all the answers. I want myself to have all the answers. And we just don't have those things right now. And it might be a a while before life goes back to normal. So what I want you to do this week or, or what I would pose to you to consider is take a bystander, a bystander's view of how you're going about your days right now and how you're coping and just kind of notice like are you drinking more? Are you scrolling more? Are you refreshing news sites more? Are uh, are you checking your email incessantly like me? And I'm raising my hand to at least some of those things. So no judgment here. Simply observe what's going on with you this week. And then from there we can kind of come up with some ideas about how we might manage during this time. One way I think we can, again, not to jump to solutions, but one way we can deal with uncertainty is to carve out little pockets of time for ourselves. And I hope that this week's episode does that for you. I'm talking with Rachel Thompson today, and this episode is all about uncertainty and all about grief and traumatic personal events. And so it's super different than what is happening in the world right now. And like always, there are so many similarities. And Rachel is just so incredibly insightful about her writing practice. And the story that she brings to us today is a personal one that will tug at your heart for sure. I hope that listening to the podcast today gives you a space where you can get outside of the noise for a little bit. I'll tell you about Rachel and then I will bring you our interview. Rachel Thompson is an author and editor whose first collection of poetry entitled Galaxy was published by Anvil Press and won SFU's first book competition. Rachel is an editorial collective member at Room Magazine and the host of Lit Mag Love podcast for writers who want to publish. You can find Rachel at rachelthompson.co and especially if you're interested in a writing community or you want ideas for getting published, go check her out. Enjoy our conversation and we'll talk soon. 
Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the Orchid Story podcast. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for inviting me. Today's the Rachel show. Um, I'm really thrilled and excited to have you here as an author and an editor. I feel like you're going to have so much to share with us and really looking forward to that. I would like to ask if you brought a piece uh, today that you'd like to share with us. And if you want to introduce it in any way, go ahead and do that and then you can read it for us. Sure. Um, The piece I brought has never been read before. It's a piece um, that makes up the opening of the memoir that I'm in the midst of writing and still kind of negotiating how it's even going to look. And I just want to say that it discusses a stillbirth. So I just want to make sure people maybe who don't feel comfortable hearing that story right now because of their own experiences, maybe skip ahead. It's like not more, probably more than a minute long if you wanted to still hear our conversation but not have to listen to the, to the piece. Yeah, thank you for, for being so thoughtful about that. Well, thanks. Transverse arrest. This metal table is the threshold between worlds that women rise from as mothers. I squint under the giant halogen hanging over me, yet I still wonder if I am the sun while busy staff satellite in orbit around my round body. It's quiet in this space, void of sound. The fetal monitor has stopped its signal. My doctor, quaffed like the star of a silent movie, uses exaggerated movements and slides the metal listening disc over my abdomen. He frowns then lifts a stern finger to his supporting cast. Oh, I understand, they orbit him, not me. He turns his ear, listening intently to the machine, slides the metal disc over and over, then makes the slightest nod to the satellite behind me. An intravenous cold laces up my arm. It's infinite, an abyss with no beginning or end. How much later is it that I'm on a different bed, drifting down the hallway, empty as a dead planet, A voice chokes from my throat, did my baby die? Well, the man in hospital scrubs who pushes me along won't catch my eye. He doesn't need to tell me. Flashes of memory return, the eclipse of my blue sun rising over the moon of my belly. Another doctor pulled him by the feet, up, away, across the only threshold that matters, away from me. My world is In its natural order, I will rise, still unmothered, motherless, and not a mother. Wow, that is powerful. I feel like we need to give ourselves a minute to let it soak in. Thanks. what strikes me is the imagery like i am there with you with the way that you've described the experience i don't know if it's because like having given birth i can really picture it but i'm i can totally see this picture that you are painting for us 
thank you. I mean, that's what we're aiming for as writers. I would say it took um, it took a long time to be able to write it, and I'm really you know grateful to be having this conversation with you today about because I really resonate with what you, you're discussing here in terms of that kind of life before and after. And for sure, this is mm. this is the moment that bifurcated my life in many ways. Yeah. Um, but being able to write about it took many, many more years. So as as we're speaking to writers, one of the things I feel like I want to be clear off the bat is is we don't write often from the wound. We write from the scar and it takes some time to get to that scar point to be able to even discuss it. And you can hear even as I'm reading it, the emotion in my voice, it's still a difficult story that I'm still reconciling with as I write this memoir. Yeah, I so appreciate that. Can you tell us a little more about what you mean by writing from the scar? Is that what you said and not the wound? I may have said it the wrong way around, but that is what I meant. Yeah. No, no, that's how you said it. I was okay, just making sure I got, <laughs> I got it right. Tell us a little more about like how for this particular story for you and life experience, how did it how did you know when it had become more of a scar that you could share rather than something that you were still in the middle of processing? Hmm. I think, I mean, it took many years. I actually gave up writing in those years, even too, at a, at a point, because I thought I'm an autobiographical writer and I don't want to experience this again through writing. Really, you know, for me, writing is very much that Annie Neeson quote, we write to taste life twice, once in the moment and once in introspection. And oh, I love the that. mantra I was telling myself was, I, I don't want to taste this again. And I don't want to harm people with the story too, because I found even just telling the story casually to people, you know, responses would be things like, oh, I feel like I've been punched in the stomach or, wow. you know, just, it's a, he it's a heavy thing in and of itself. And then also then to think about, well, then how do you turn that into art? Because I'm mm -hmm. right about my life too. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and feeling like that even, you know, in some ways diminishes that experience of that life that I loved and lost. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for me, the point came, you know, several years later when I started dipping back into writing and I read Mary Carr's book about, um, you know, the title's usually ingrained in my brain, but slipping my mind at the moment, but it's um, writing how to write an autobiograph autobiography, basically, or how to write a memoir. Mm -hmm. I think it's the art, sorry, the art of memoir. Okay. <laughs> there, it is still in my brain. I love her um, memoir that I can't think yeah. of the right now either, but yes, love her. Yeah, no, and she's, I think she's got some really great insights in that book in particular about how to write it, exactly that how to write from the scar and not the wound and and so I was reading that book thinking about writing this memoir and then at the begin early on in the book there's an exercise that's basically spend a moment and see if you can write about the most difficult part and if you can do that with not without emotion she says but you know without like going to bed for a couple of weeks or something, yep. <laughs> then maybe you're ready. And so I, that, I tried that and thought, okay, I think I'm, I'm at the point where I can start trying to, to write this story. 
That I, I love that exercise. I feel like that could be so clarifying for anyone who is interested in exploring a challenging life experience like like yours. I I was struck by some of the words that you used that all had to do with planets and orbit and satellite and sun and moon. How how did that come into your piece? I'm just curious. Sure. Um, I think, I mean, just the experience of pregnancy, you just feel like this massive mass of of a person (laughs) and so I mean I think that was something that just an image I guess or an embodied experience for me of being in that in that state in that size and then I'm I think I mean primarily it's the the image of um, my blue sun rising over the moon in my belly I think that's sort of the image that that became the kernel of everything there that was something that I wanted to be able to express and everything. And then I also wanted everything else to kind of fall into orbit, if you will, with, Mm. with that image. Yes. And another thing I took away was not that they were competing orbits, but your orbit and the doctor and the medical staff and how just sort of like the whole idea of their agenda and process is it's like it's related to you but it's it's like a different orbit that really I can relate to that and it, it that really struck me about about your piece yeah there's a whole I mean I just think I mean since since this experience and since, um, I guess not since writing this, but since the, this experience, I have had two other children. And so I've been in the hospital again, you know, having my children were born in the hospital. And for sure, I feel like there's a really disembodied experience that happens with it. And not just, you know, if you're taking any kind of numbing medication, but just the idea, yeah, that there's all these systems and processes happening around you and you're told kind of only what you need to know and mm-hmm. the communication is, is challenging. And so it's very disorienting. And I think that's part of what I was trying to express there too. It's just sort of not, you're kind of, you're not the person that they're going to keep apprised of things because you're going through something that they can't really communicate to you you know, through, I guess I'm kind of letting them off the hook a little bit there, although I think within the piece, I'm probably also not, not happy with being, feeling kind of estranged from, from the center and not knowing what's going on, not being really told what's going on and being treated in a, in a somewhat paternalistic way. Right. Because I don't know if it actually played out this way, but the way I took it in was that you had to ask the question about losing your baby instead of it being uh, disclosed to you or shared with you, maybe would be a better way of, of, of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's also, I'm, 
it's memoir and I'm pretty true to what happened from my perspective. Memoir mm -hmm. is all about perspective. Um, and for sure later the doctor came and we talked about what happened, but, um, I think that also there was no reason for that person to think I didn't know what had happened, but you know, you're medicated and yeah, blacking out kind of. So it's like, I don't really know what happened in this moment. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I how, definitely how it played out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I so appreciate you sharing this particular story. I think most of the women I, or most of the people I work with and that listen to the podcast are women and, and just the struggles of, fertility and child loss. And even if not, even if it's something like my own experience where my son was just that he, he is healthy in a way, um, dealing with chronic disease, but it's still like the loss of what you, what I expected and, um, the loss of sort of the quote, normal pregnancy and delivery. Mm -hmm. In any case, I think so many of us experience this and not not a lot of people talk about it. And I want to say thank you for, for sharing this with us today. And I hope, I hope it comes together in whatever format that it does so that we can, we can read more. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. How, I, oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> I, I kind of feel what you're saying too, about your experience with Griffin and having things not go how you thought they were going to go and that's definitely a loss too and then feeling you know all that all the emotions that come with your child being in danger um I feel like sometimes at the root of a lot of this loss that we're writing about and other writers that I that I work with or writers that are you know my peers that we're writing about comes down to disenfranchised grief so it's not just that we're grieving something it's that we can't talk about it or it's mm. not acknowledged in the same way that um you know the stories for me were kind of like well you can still have children and now you have these beautiful children mm -hmm. so let's it's time to not write this you know this isn't something you want to focus on or in your, in your case you know your son's born and and had the best outcome possible given the circumstances i think if i understand your story correctly mm -hmm. um and yet and yet we're still grieving and yet it still is something that changed us in some way. And we want to be able to talk about it in some way. And it's, and we're often silenced from talking about these things. So I feel like that's the, the best part about writing is having that, that, that outlet, that place to be able to tell those stories. Yes. I could not agree more. I love the way you just articulated that. And, and this, this uh, term, disenfranchised grief. That's, I'm going to chew on that and think about that one. Um, do you, or not do you, but how did writing this particular scene, I'm sure it was really challenging in the moment. How, how has it mm, integrated into you, into your life now that you have written it? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes we sometimes we say that writing itself is healing and I don't feel like that's necessarily the experience. It's like the writing of it healed me and gave meaning to this and you know it's still just a terrible moment. Um, 
but I do, I feel like I can, I've been able to face something that I found I that almost made me stop writing and writing for me was really the only place where I could express myself. Um, I was like, you know, the kind of prototypical writer, really quiet child. I was really, you know, flooded by my emotions, full of all these ideas, but not no way to express them. And so writing was my sanctuary. And then to, for me to lose it yeah. because I was fearful about, um, you know, the reliving that pain or even hurting people because when I write, I do still think about publication. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh my goodness, I think I've lost I've lost my momentum. Sorry. Um, can you help me get back on track, please? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um so let's see. I was asking you how it's kind of your story has helped you integrate the experience into your life. Yes, integrate. You were saying like it, you don't really feel like it's been healing, but I don't know. Take it from there. I guess, yeah, it it has and it hasn't. I, I think sometimes maybe the record I want to set straight somehow is that mm-hmm. just writing is cathartic in and of itself. And, oh, you just write it out kind of thing. Um, because it's still painful to write. It's still painful to think about. It's not, it's never going to be like, oh, and this is the wonderful, you know, bump in the road that, yeah. that made me who I am today. And it's also not that I wouldn't, that I would change things either. It's not like I fantasize about things turning out differently necessarily. I kind of, you know, just feel like my, this is the path that I've taken in my life. Um, so yes and no, I think <laughs> I'm resistant to the idea that I've healed through writing this, but yet at the same time, I'm able to, to I am able to create some meaning in terms of like, story and narrative and writing and understanding these sort of bigger where this fits into the bigger sense of disenfranchised grief maybe in my life like the bigger story that I have and the story that I was telling myself after this loss about what what it meant was ongoing as a kind of really negative track in my mind and so being able to create some distance through writing about it has been has been helpful for sure. That's great. Yeah. I, I like how you, how you describe that. Um, and I think this, this, um, idea of, or, or not idea, but this obstacle of a painful experience sort of being so huge and, and causing us so much grief that we're not sure we want to touch it and open it back up. If that, if that's what we are nervous about. And like you said, the idea of how other people, will receive it. That might be a fear that we have. How do you talk with the writers that you work with about approaching these really personal topics and experiences? Oh, that's a great question. Because a lot of the writers I work with, and I mean, if there's maybe one thing that came out of this experience is definitely that by when you're kind of someone who's been broken open in this way than other people who have that those kind of experiences then trust you know that Mm -hmm. you know where they're coming from and so I work with really beautiful writers and a lot of whom are writing difficult stories for sure um 
and I would give them definitely some of the advice that I took myself around, you know, discovering whether you're ready to write that story, whether you can unhook yourself enough from the story to be able to one, put it down on paper and then two, have an eye toward even publishing it and sharing it in a broader forum. Um, writers that I've interviewed and through the Lit Mag Love podcast, um, one um, in particular strikes me as the advice, the advice she gave really strikes me because it was to write around the wound versus writing the act. Like you don't have to actually write in detail what happened. Like even like I've done here, that's yeah. not necessary for you to be able to write that story of like, what's the aftermath? What's the before? Like there's sort of other areas that you can write through to be able to tell that story if you want to, but you don't have to, if it's traumatic to write, you don't have to re-traumatize yourself in some way. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I have also used that with the women that I've worked with where if it feels too big and too deep, like an abyss that you might not come out of, um, that maybe we can approach it from a different angle or a different storyline even. Um, and that, that I agree that that seems to work really well for some people. And there's some other things that like in creative nonfiction, there's been a real surge recently in the last you know, several years of writing really lyric creative nonfiction. So even, I mean, this piece that I read to you today you, borrows a lot from poetry in terms mm -hmm. of the images. And there are other ways that people can almost kind of protect themselves in the writing. Actually, there's a, a really great form that's called the Hermit Crab Essay. Okay. And it's a kind of essay that you borrow a shell for for it. Um, so, I mean, you, I'm sure you, you probably know this form, but I think it's such a useful one to be able to protect yourself because you make you disguise the piece as something else. Um, so, you know, you could be writing a laundry list instead of, but but meanwhile you're telling the story still within that within that form or you're, or you're talking in the, you know, in the second person instead. Mm -hmm. So it's you experience this and you don't necessarily have to make it about the eye and make it so close when it's still so raw. And in some ways, those are ways of kind of poking your head out. I, I definitely wrote kind of through a period where I was writing in a more disguised way and then being able to kind of step by step kind of even all out of that that shell <laughs> has been helpful for me to to now be able to write I'm writing from uh, the you know the eye and from um where it's definitely like I'm not really hiding in in the pieces that I'm writing now and I don't but I felt like there was a period where I needed to hide in some ways just to be able to get some some things some thoughts and ideas down mm -hmm. yeah I I have I know these techniques that you're referring to, but I do not know hermit, the reference to the hermit crab. So that's super helpful and almost a little fun in a way. If you could think of putting on a little shell as you go into your writing practice, I think we, we do need that sometimes. And, and like sometimes, as you're saying, we can get to a point where we're ready to go there or use the eye or 
look at the hard thing straight on, but maybe we need some warm ups, you know, to get us to that place. I know one thing that is important to you is writing community and you have a writing community called Writerly Love. And this is something, the idea of, of a community supporting you as you're going about your writing practice is something I really think is helpful too. Can you tell us why, why is it helpful to have a community of people supporting your writing? Yeah, I mean, for me, writing has come to mean community to me. Mm. Like I think that the, what writing, what writing can bring us is that sense of community. Writing after all is really reaching out and trying to connect with people and saying, Hey, do you understand this? Or, you know, if you read this, would you, would you connect or resonate with what I'm have, what I have to say here um, at its fundamental level. And then for over the years when I continued writing, it was that place where I was like able to express myself, to share the true story, you know, and, and be honest and, and dig deep into, you know, my own philosophies or just the experiences that I had in a lot of ways. I was a very, I was silenced a lot as a child, I was, I was quiet, but also silenced where my story wasn't important or discounted. And so writing was the place where I could finally be free to, to write and share those, those thoughts and ideas that were, you know, stirring around in me. But then it's difficult to continue toiling as a writer in that room of your own. And, and it can be very, very isolating. And at certain point you need you need readers, you need people to respond and give you feedback, but then you're not ready yet necessarily to like publish and to be, have those kind of readers. So, you know, other, and a community of writers can become your first readers. Writers that stick to community, I feel like often then can sustain themselves as a writer. You can write on your own, but then being able to continue to write, to continue to stretch and learn together to you know write those write write your story requires having other writers who can help you do what in some ways is really such um a counterculture thing it's like i'm going to slow down and think about things and understand yes. <laughs> like it said everything in our culture is telling us no hurry up and you don't think too much about this just you know consume or keep you know um keep yourself occupied, keep your mind occupied in these other ways. And, and so it's, it's a way for us to also connect with other people who are like, oh, okay, you're doing this really strange counterculture thing too. And, and, you know, where, and being able to have someone to really read and, and understand like they're in the proverbial arena too. If you think of the Brene Brown idea that, yeah. you know, the people that you want to take feedback from are the people who are actually down in the dirt with you so to have a writing community means to have those people who've got your back but who also are going to supportively challenge you and help you grow and develop as a writer so that's i mean writerly love has been an amazing group of of writers who are 
willing to show up for each other in a really warm and supportive way. Because sometimes to the writing community, there's this idea that we're all in competition. And in some ways we are, like there's very few spots to, to publish and it takes a lot to have a peace place, but it's so much easier and so much more meaningful and resonant, I think, if we can, instead of compete, kind of support and help each other and, and help us all grow in the ways that we want to grow as writers. Yeah, I think, and I think it, there's something so powerful about connecting over a story that without even, even if it never goes out to be published, it's something about feeling validated almost. And not like you, you need that, but it's just so heartwarming and reassuring to give your space, give your piece, your writing, like out into beyond you um, and to, for it to be received in a positive way that I have found to be really impactful, which I think is what you're saying too. For sure. Yeah. And just to be really true, like if you are sharing your truest feelings in writing, then to have people read that and respond to it. And even if it sometimes is like, okay, I need, you know, I don't quite understand what's happening here. Can you tell me more about this? Mm -hmm. Is just to be seen in that way, I think is really so powerful. Um, and so many of us, I mean, I think feel really unseen. Seen, yes. Especially, you know, the, the communities that we work in, I think. Um, like women aren't aren't really heard a lot in our society. I mean, we're getting louder, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, people are listening more and more maybe, but, um, but to be able to, to express yourself and have people go, oh yeah, I see you. Yes. Yes. I, I cannot agree more. To be seen and heard is so powerful. And I think it's part of, I mean, I think it doesn't have to be part of the writing process, but I have found the most fulfillment when I'm able to get a response and in a, in a loving and healthy way. Yeah. When someone's true, like truly connecting empathetically, understanding what you're saying, because you've brought that empathy to your own writing yeah, is really what it's all about for sure. Yeah. yeah that's so beautiful. Um, before we, before we close out our conversation, because you are an editor and you teach publishing, I would, I'd love to hear, um, if, if we have listeners who are interested in the idea of publishing their work, let's say maybe they have a personal essay that they're feeling pretty good about, give us a couple tips about how to, how to think about the publishing process. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, part of it starts before the piece is ready or when you're looking at the, the works that you're considering sending out. Editors are often looking for it's really urgent stories. Mm -hmm. and, and that applies across the board. That could be in fiction, in nonfiction, poetry. But the urgency that comes from like a, the place where you, it's a story you have to tell. It's the reason that you're here to tell that story. And we can feel that as editors, as we're reading the pieces, readers can feel that. And that's the first thing that's going to make your piece stand out in 
what we call the slush pile. So the all the submissions that that editors receive. Um, so that's the right and the writing of the thing for sure. Yeah. I mean, revising it well, reading the guidelines for the lit mag, all those things are important. Sending in work that's been proofread or maybe read by you know a few other other writers if you have that community available. Um, but I think I feel like the most important thing, and this is why I created the lit mag love course that I teach and the podcast that I have is because there's a really big disconnect between once I became an editor, I realized what I didn't know as a writer about lit mags, which is it's really not personal when we don't publish your work. We, we get so much work that's submitted. It's like 3% maybe makes it in the journal. If you're, if you're lucky, there's some journals that get way more submissions and it's closer to 1%. Wow. Yeah. Um, so if you get any kind of response, you've won. Like if you mm. get a slightly personal note on it, it means your piece is outstanding and it just, it really couldn't fit into the restraints that they have, the constraints for the issue. I'm editing an issue right now for Room and we're making, we're making choices on the pieces we're going to publish and it, we want the pieces to resonate with each other. And so, you know, if you, you might right. send a piece in that's amazing, but if it's too similar in form or style to another piece, maybe that I've already decided mm -hmm. to publish, I might not be able to publish your piece, but it doesn't mean that your piece isn't publishable. So I would say, you know, get to know the journals, but then don't just send it to one place and then take that no and be, okay, I guess it's a no, this isn't ever going to be published because it really takes a lot more, um, like you, I would say you even want to send it out to like 10 places before you even decide, oh, maybe I'll take a look at this again or see what kind of feedback you're getting on mm -hmm. the piece. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I The most prominent place I've been published, I guess you could say, um, is Huffington Post. And that essay was rejected several other places before it was accepted there. and what I found, and I'd love to hear if you have like another way of going about this, but when I first started submitting, I haven't really been submitting my writing for publication lately, but when I have in the past, the only real way I was able to get over that sting was just to keep doing it. Do you have any other, other tips for like, for how to not feel not not feel badly about yourself when you do get the rejections other than just you have to just keep trying again and you kind of get used to it a little bit yeah i i would say actually i don't think you ever fully get used to the rejection yeah. it's still going to hurt i mean you've you've poured your heart out on the page and someone said nah i'm gonna pass so but i think what happens with the people like the students that i work with the writers i work with is it, that becomes a little bit of a quicker process. So you have mm -hmm. your feelings, but then you kind of already, because you already have a plan. So I think it's really important to have a plan and, and expect to be rejected. I love the idea um, that came out a few years ago of a hundred rejections. So mm -hmm. the idea is like to kind of gamify rejection and go, okay, I'm actually trying to get rejected. It means I'm showing up. It means I'm in that arena and doing the work of being a writer. Um, so I would, you know, encourage people to think of it that way. And, and if it is too hard though, and if it really just feels like absolutely gutting every time, then that 
I would look more at the work and think maybe this work you haven't unhooked yourself enough from. Yeah. It feels too personal. It's too connected to you. That's a really, that's a really good point. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I don't know if your resource for 100 rejection letters is Tiffany Hahn, but I've, um, she's, I give a shout out to her. She's done, um, I, I've done business coaching with her and just love her. So if you, anybody out there is interested in the idea of 100 rejection letters, go check her out. Her last name is H-A-N. Um, Great. Yeah. I don't know. It was an article that was making the rounds around the time I launched the course. So if that was, she who wrote that article, then awesome. I love it. Yeah. I don't know, but she, um, th this is something she feels really strongly about. And I have taken her course, 100 rejection letters at a time when I was submitting for publication. And it really, it did really help, um, give yourself a gold star every time you get a rejection is like totally flipping the system on its head. And, and does, it does help like anything we can do to keep ourselves uplifted and keep going so we can keep doing the work. Yeah. And I think the more you connect with other writers who are submitting to, then the more you can kind of wear it as a badge of honor and work together. I know some of the writers who are alum, alumni of the Lit Mag Love course, they get together and they do this game called Sink or Submit. And so you get a point for every submission you have out that has, you haven't heard back on. And I think you get double points for a rejection. Nice. Then you go back down to zero every time you have an acceptance. So it's really <laughs> rewarding <laughs> you for having work out or taking those hits, you know? And so, and then they send each other a little, a small gift. Whoever's awesome. one month. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us today, your story and yourself and your expertise. If people are interested in either the Lit Mag Love course or the, um, the writing community, Writerly Love, where should they find you? Everything's on my website at rachelthompson.co rachelthompson.co and my last name sorry is spelled or my first name is spelled the same as yours so r-a-c-h-e-l and my last name is t-h-o-m-p-s-o-n great thanks so much for being with us here today rachel thank you so much for having me i want to ask you who in your life needs to hear this story today go ahead and share it with them and if you love this show leave me a rating and a review on iTunes. Head over to orchidstory.com if you want more from Orchid Story. And remember, your story is your strength.